it makes sense there's been a run on medical masks as fears of the coronavirus continue. Pharmacies say face masks have been flying off the shelves. Basically, we have been wiped out. The warehouses wiped out. But what may be surprising is this kind of shortage is nothing new. And believe it or not, it was all because doctors were low on surgical gowns. White says they've always experienced a backlog of IV bags for two years now. Across the nation, protocols are changing because it's just not available. Health workers driven to improvising, hoarding, even rationing due to shortages of basic medical supplies. When drugs run short, we know it because we track it. When it comes to medical supply shortages, we know a lot less. Today, a look at the causes and consequences of these shortages and what we might be able to do about them. From the Annenberg Studio at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Our story starts in Texas, not with a shortage, but a crisis. As far as Houston, Texas goes, we have a very, very high volume of colorectal surgery. That's Dr. Eric Haas, a surgeon at Houston Methodist Hospital. He specializes in patients with colon cancer. I think it might have been around this time of the year, about a year ago. Haas and his team were just about done doing what they do several times a week, cutting cancer out of someone's colon. There's two steps to colon cancer surgery. The first is removing the cancer safely, which we were able to do. The second step is putting the colon back together. In this particular day, it was, it was a lengthy procedure because of the size of the cancer, and the uh, patient was a little bit on the larger side, a little bit more difficult in the anatomy. The second step of the procedure, putting the colon back together, is often the most difficult part. It's always an intense moment because this is what really dictates the quality of life for this patient pretty much the rest of their life. If the team doesn't put the patient's colon back together safely, the man could end up with a colostomy bag. You really feel as a surgeon, you feel like this is in your hands. This is what he and his family, this is what they're depending on you for. Surgeons have come to rely on staplers for this technical, delicate, and high-stakes portion of the surgery. Single-use staplers that fire tiny titanium staples into the tissue to close the colon. Haas compares this moment to airplane pilots before takeoff. You know, there's a, a bunch of checks and buttons, and you're making sure everything's, you know, green light, everything's on, everything's working. You've got the anesthesiologist. You have my partner, myself. Then there's going to be the nurse who uh, helps us get the right supplies and equipment. On this particular day, it's Haas's partner, the second surgeon in the room, who fires the stapler. And it appears to be working properly. The device is supposed to shoot two rows of the metallic staples all at once, finishing with a crunch. Today, there's no sound at all. It's almost like using a conventional stapler, and let's say you have a large stack of papers, and it kind of one of the staple ends bends the wrong way or doesn't, go through all the paper. And that's what we saw. We saw all the way around the tissue, a bunch of misformed and malaligned staples. Everybody else in the room is watching on the big monitors, magnifying the staples. Without words, everyone in the room knew that something was, was wrong. The doctors and nurses huddle. The good news, their patient is stable. So that gives them a few minutes to work out what to do. Haas suggests stitching the two ends of the man's colon a technique rarely used or even learned by many surgeons today. They decide what type of suture, what size. They even map the plan out. And then, success. It was airtight. It was sealed. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And lo and behold, the patient did 
absolutely phenomenal. The minute you're finished, you feel like, you know, you, you just ran the marathon. But he knew he had one more step to take. He alerted the stapler maker, Ethicon, a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. The company's representative assured Haas she'd update him as soon as she could. The next day, Haas and the team found themselves in the exact same situation. The cancer has been removed. The patient is doing very, very well. The same tense moment before attempting to reattach the colon. And again, no crunch. And that's when this went to DEFCOM 5. Because happening once in 20 years is one in a million. But twice in a row, we need to immediately put everybody uh, on alert. The hospital ditches its entire case of staplers. Haas hoped this was an isolated incident, but it turned out similar problems were cropping up. We started hearing rumblings. Hey, are you guys having trouble with your stapler? We had a misfire over here in Cleveland, or we had a misfire over here in New York. Last April, Ethicon recalled more than 90,000 staplers. The FDA identified it as a Class 1 recall, its most serious. Ethicon controls about half the market for these devices. So Haas and other surgeons around the country turned to Medtronic, the only other stapler manufacturer. But it turned out Medtronic was having its own problems and had halted all new production. So it was almost a perfect storm. In fact, I think it was a perfect storm. And so now we were really on the clock, where every day was a day closer to literally running out of these critical staplers for our patients. Medtronic declined to comment for our story. Ethicon said in a statement it issued a voluntary recall, quote, due to a small number of reports of the devices not performing as intended. The company says the recall lasted about two months. At the outset, hospitals borrowed staplers from other hospitals. But as supply dwindled, Haas says the shortage impacted their patients. When we were really out of staplers in the city of Houston, pretty big city, we had hit a critical point, a point where we were now maybe prioritizing, let's operate on them. This other patient, they need surgery, but instead of doing the surgery now and using one of our coveted staplers, let's push them back by six weeks or eight weeks. Surgeons started to get desperate. A circular stapler was like gold, like a brick of gold. Haas remembers securing one of the last staplers during the shortage. Before the surgery, I wanted to make sure we had that stapler, and it was missing. And so we had a team trying to find where was this golden stapler? Where did it go off to? Staplers were so uh, critical, and there were so such a shortage that the stapling device was being hidden. That's when I sat back and said, we have a crisis of which I really don't know if I've ever seen in my career. Haas said Houston was only out of staplers for a few days before the recall ended and truckloads of new staplers started coming in. But as relieved as Haas and his colleagues around the country were, the shortage had left them shaken. Clearly, the fact that there are only two manufacturers making these staplers was a major driver of the shortage. We wanted to know, though, if other products, things like gowns and masks, were this concentrated too, and if that might be part of what's causing all of these shortages. 
We've asked one of the few academics in the country who actually studies these things to look into this for us. Matt Grennan is an economist at Wharton, the business school at the University of Pennsylvania. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. So you've run some numbers for us on this. Thank you. That's very kind of you. What have you found? Yeah, so we, we looked at the top 100 medical devices and supplies by revenue, and then we looked within those to find some of the more low-tech items. And there we found that staplers are, are pretty much in the middle of what you find here. That these markets in the middle? Are, yeah, these markets are all highly concentrated. Like, what are we talking about? In some categories, there might be three manufacturers who make most of the product, in some, uh, a few more, but in others, there might be one manufacturer who, who makes up most of the market. And where's this data coming from? Uh, so this comes from, we've, we've been doing research on hospital supplies for a while now uh, with this really interesting data set from the ECRI Institute. They are a nonprofit, and one of the things they do is, uh, is collect a lot of purchase order data from many hospitals across the U.S., now slightly over 30% of U.S. hospitals uh, in this data set. So let's just play this game for a second where I'm going to name the top 20 sort of low-tech supplies, the 20 that are the most commonly purchased items, and you tell me the number of manufacturers that there are, uh, at least that serve a majority of the market. That's, say, like 75% or more. Okay. So needles. One. Liquid adhesives. Two. Surgical drapes. Five. Medical gowns. Three. Matt says there are lots of reasons for this kind of concentration, including the time and money it takes to start up a highly regulated manufacturing plant, a desire from hospitals for one-stop shopping, and relatively small markets that fly under the radar of antitrust enforcers at the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. Surface disinfectant towelettes. One. So when you give me these numbers, there are lots of twos and ones. How much do you want to sort of chalk up concentration and consolidation to why we're seeing all these medical device shortages. For that, I think we'd need to know a little bit more about what the actual kind of manufacturing supply chain looks like. You know, this sort of data isn't going to tell us you know, whether Ethicon is making those staplers in one facility for the whole world or the whole United States versus 10 different facilities. And you know, that would have a, a potentially big impact for things like shortages. I think we'd also want to think about the trade-offs here, right? If there are large economies of scale in manufacturing and in distribution and big value to one-stop shopping for hospitals, then that could be a really efficient thing to have. Hospitals save money. Hospitals could be saving lots of money. On the other hand, when you have a few manufacturers, we're always worried about potential market power and pricing. And and you know, the fact that the supply chain only has a few manufacturers could lead to increased uh, probability of shortages. Matt, thanks a lot for being on Tradeoffs. Thanks, Dan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. So consolidation could be part of the issue, but even if it is, it's just one piece of the puzzle when it comes to medical supply shortages. It's actually a systematic issue. And nobody is really taking the perspective of a system to look at the entire uh, production cycle, all the way from raw material to the demand. Ozem Argun is a professor of mechanical and industrial engineering at Northeastern University. She studies all kinds of systems from aircraft scheduling to humanitarian relief efforts. But over the last five years, she's turned her attention to supply chains in healthcare. When we started like getting interested in uh, pharmaceutical shortages and medical supply shortages, all of a sudden we realized that this is a huge problem. Oslam says your average medical supply chain is like most supply chains. You start with raw materials, which go through the manufacturers, distributors, and eventually end up at the hospitals and health systems. And she says shortages happen from time to time in most supply chains. I think what's surprising here is that this is chronic. I mean, there's always a shortage of some kind, and it gets usually exasperated when there is a demand peak, uh, such as if you're having a particularly bad flu season or, you know, kind of an unexpected uh, viral outbreak, such as we're seeing right now. Also, there are a lot of shortages that are occurring due to other shortages, and all the stakeholders are aware of this. It's just the, the public is not aware of it. So... It would come up in the newspapers once in a while. A shortage of basic medical equipment used in hospitals every day is having an effect on patients who are in serious need of care. Surgeries are reportedly being postponed around the country because of a shortage of surgical gowns. More than nine. But usually it will fade away from the news cycle. And it seems like nobody's doing anything about it. Well, I would say it's it's not true to say that nobody is doing anything about it. What I would say is that everybody is complaining about it and trying to do something, but I think nobody really understands the fact that it is a systemic problem. You know, I think it's human nature that if something is complex, then you kind of throw your hands up and you say, like, I don't know what to do, or everybody's pointing finger and nobody is trying to understand the complexity and deal with the complexity of the problem. Can you give an example of how complex the problem actually is? One example that I know of and I kind of had a personal experience with was the sterile fluid shortage in 2017 and early 2018 due to the Maria hitting Puerto Rico. The majority of America's largest saline bag manufacturers happen to be in Puerto Rico. And since Hurricane Maria, there's been a severe nationwide shortage of saline bags and IV fluid. These saline bags are critical to hospitals and treatment centers. They are used every day to administer fluids and medicines to patients. In fact, I was supposed to get small outpatient operation early 2018, and my doctor started to delay my operation. And at one point when I asked her what's going on, she told me that they just don't have the sterile fluids in, the, in, in their practice anymore. Several prominent hospitals across the country are scrambling to find alternative supplies or change the way they actually administer drugs to patients. An IV is the fastest way to give medications and fluids throughout the body. For months, hospital staff and paramedics have had to manually administer, which takes more time. 
And then some months later, I started to hear that within the Boston area, there were certain hospitals that started to actually run out of syringes, which was, you know, completely interesting because it was there was really no problem within the syringe production process. But then because now everybody started to use syringes to deliver some of these drugs, now everybody started to run into a shortage of syringe. While reporting this story, we tried to get some hard numbers on these shortages. How many are there? Are there more today than there were 10 years ago? But we found out no one's got data like that. With drug shortages, companies have to tell the FDA if there's a problem. That's not the case with medical supplies. Adam Saltman, the FDA's top guy on supply shortages, told us that all of the information the agency gets from those manufacturers is voluntary. He says the FDA is pushing for legislation that would require regular reporting from the companies so the agency could respond better, maybe even prevent future shortages. Osam, how important is consolidation in these markets? We were talking with one economist at the University of Pennsylvania who said for lots of the most common supplies, there's only really one or two manufacturers for these products. I would say I am not an economist, so I'm not an expert, but I can tell you what I am seeing from a supply chain perspective. These are very low margin products, and that I think creates a marketplace that is ripe for mergers and acquisitions. That makes the system more and more leaner and more and more cost effective, right? But then what does that lead to? That leads to having very few production plants. Uh, These production plants sometimes being in places like we we might end up having 80% of the production that goes into the domestic market in Puerto Rico, which is an island in the hurricane belt. Uh, So it kind of tells you that this is not a very resilient system because of cost effectiveness. Do do you think the federal government also should sort of subsidize some of these basic products, kind of like the way the federal government incentivizes and subsidizes uh, the production of corn and soybeans? I really do think that's an option. I would study the impact of definitely subsidies. And I would say definitely information and data. There needs to be some kind of a regulation at the very least in terms of uh, reporting of shortages, potential production distribution, and even user changes so that there's a way to actually anticipate what might be happening. Awesome. Thank you very much for talking to us on Tradeoffs. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Experts like Ozum say policymakers and healthcare officials must grapple with how much market efficiency we're willing to sacrifice to make sure we have basic supplies in a crisis. More often than not, the supply chain is optimized for just-in-time purchasers rather than just-in-case planners, making shortages a chronic condition in U.S. hospitals. And healthcare workers are the ones forced to pick up the slack. Doctors reusing masks as coronavirus rages on. Paramedics saving up sailing for only their sickest patients. Colon cancer surgeons treating staplers like golden bricks. The stapler shortage made such an impression on surgeons that it inspired special training sessions at their annual meetings this spring. The name of one of the sessions? My device was recalled. What do I do? I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Offs. 
a lot of politicians like to talk about whether or not health care should be a right. We need a health care system that guarantees health care to all people. Yeah, I propose Medicare for all who want it. A public option that would bring down the cost of the premium and expand the number of people covered. But what if that's not the right question? The question we should be addressing is how much health care do we want to guarantee to all Americans? And that requires some judgment about where we draw the line. How much healthcare should be a right? Next time on a special edition of Tradeoffs, recorded in front of a live audience. Just a quick postscript here. Last week, passions were running hot, and folks were waxing poetic with hashtag health policy valentines. So we had an unofficial contest for the best poem posted. Winner gets a newly designed Tradeoffs t shirt. And there were quite a few suitors to choose from. This is Allison Buttenheim. Allison is a behavioral scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. Her muse and the subject of her studies is parental vaccine hesitancy. How hard to exempt those childhood vaccines? Mandates versus choice. Policy trade-off supreme. Bianca Frogner was also courting that T-shirt. I'm an associate professor in the School of Medicine at University of Washington in Seattle. Her passion is stirred by scope of practice law and insurance design. Roses are red. Scope of practice debates are not new. Which provider you see should be based on your needs and not what lobbyists define as true. Heady stuff. But there was one couplet that captured our collective heart and the trade-offs T-shirt from Sarah Gollist, Associate Professor of Health Policy at the University of Minnesota. Will it be your place or mine? We have to make choices, my valentine. Should we expand benefits or reduce costs? Health policy, like love, requires trade-offs. Congrats to Sarah, winner of the inaugural trade-offs contest and proud owner of a new trade-offs T-shirt, We hope this allows you to wear your heart on your sleeve. And thanks to everybody who shared their poems with us at hashtag HealthPolicyValentines. Don't miss out on future contests. Follow us on Twitter at TradeOffsPod. If you enjoyed this week's episode, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whichever app you use. You can keep in touch with us between episodes by following us on Twitter, as I said, at TradeOffsPod. And subscribe to our newsletter at TradeOffs.org. The Tradeoffs team is comprised of producers Ryan Levy and Vicki Stern, researchers Jamie Song and Emily Patterson, sound designer Andrew Perella, and editor Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions, Unheard Music Concept, Moby, Kevin McLeod, and Bacon. Thanks this week to David Pittman, Antonio Banray, David Gillen, Corey Doss, Adam Saltman, Abigail Cottle, Elizabeth Ninen, Tom Derrick, Terry Loftus, Dan Hanfling, Nicolette Lucin, Matt Walker, Marta Wasinska, Aaron Fox, Bob Town, Paul Bidinger, Erica Shinoy, Pat Silla, Pablo Gorenstein, and Eamon O'Kelly. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the California Healthcare Foundation, Arnold Ventures, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Additional support from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders.
ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 